Hi guys, welcome to the first episode of our brand new podcast called Hippocratical. Um, uh, we're really excited to start this new podcast about medical ethics. Um, so let's introduce ourselves. My name is Param. Um, I'm doing biology, chemistry, maths and French at A-level. And I'm hoping to go to medical school and be a doctor. Hi, I'm Scott. I'll be doing biology, chemistry and English literature for A-level. And like Param, I would like to do medicine at university or something related to it, like biomedical sciences, because it really interests me. Um, hi, I'm Aditya. Uh, I'm looking to be a future lawyer. And my dream is to win a, supreme ca- uh, a case at Supreme Court. I'm looking to take um, psychology, economics and English literature for my A-levels. Okay, great. So now that we've all introduced each other, let's kind of get into what you can expect from our podcast. So we basically, we're all really interested in ethics, um, as well as kind of medicine and science and for Aditya, especially law and that kind of stuff. So we thought we'd love to kind of have an outlet to discuss and debate with each other, um, just short, brief kind of uh, health topics and stuff. So from our podcast, you can expect loads of um, debates and discussions on controversial health topics, uh, kind of anything and everything, really, um, looking at like different ethical approaches, different philosophers and theories, but also looking at a more scientific approach and more kind of like a medical ethics perspective as well. Uh, So it should make for a really interesting podcast. Um, So Scott... Scott's going to lead today's podcast. So Scott, would you like to tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at ethical dilemmas in medicine. And I think this is quite a good introductory topic because it it brings into light all of the challenges that doctors actually have to face. Uh, So I think Aditya wanted to explain what an ethical dilemma actually is, if you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So an ethical dilemma is fundamentally a problem in the decision-making process between two viable options, both which are not absolutely and entirely acceptable from an ethical perspective. And actually, we, we, we face these moral problems in our lives quite a lot of the time, most of the time we do, and it's re- relatively straightforward. But in this podcast, we're looking to examine such dilemmas through the lens of uh, medical ethics and the different principles that doctors and surgeons and anyone in the medical industry uh, take when making decisions. Yeah. So the main uh, non-religious theory in terms of ethical dilemmas, uh, well, one of them is called utilitarianism. And you might have heard of it before by the the main principle behind it, which is the greatest good for the greatest number. So uh, one example of this is that killing can be fine if if it achieves greater good for the greater number. No one is more special than anyone else. So even though uh, people naturally uh, come to the conclusion that they are they would treat themselves um, ethically as best than other people utilitarianism suggests that everyone is equal and you have to take that concept into your approach when making decisions uh, and the opposing point of view to this is kantianism and that's named after the philosopher Immanuel kant and uh, it it basically states that things such as killing are universally wrong you can never kill someone no matter what so unlike utilitarianism, Kantianism looks at duty and intention and not consequence. So it looks at what you actually intend behind your actions. Actually, we can, we can see these kind of views uh, be translated into 
the four pillars of medical ethics. And these are actually what doctors uh, use to guide them to, uh, through any decisions they actually make. And they're fundamentally, they're comprised of autonomy, uh, beneficence, uh, non-maleficence, and justice. And now those are pretty big words, so it's probably worth explaining a bit on what they're about. So autonomy, uh, pretty straightforward that one, it's, it's about respecting the patients and their right to refuse and accept treatment fundamentally. So uh, patients uh, in the end ultimately have the final control, the final say on uh, what happens to them, whether they wanna take a surgery or whether they don't, whether they want treatment or whether they don't essentially, right? Um, beneficence is an act that uh, helps healthcare providers uh, to always take action that always must and must, 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 must uh, benefit uh, the patient in mind. So every action they take must benefit the patient in mind. And non-maleficence is uh, the principle that medical practitioners uh, may not knowingly cause harm to a patient. So uh, they, can, they can never assist in anything that would essentially harm the patient. And you actually see these uh, beneficence and non-maleficence uh, in the Hippocratic Oath, which is uh, the oath that all doctors take to uh, essentially be a good doctor and uh, have, have a license. And finally, you see this idea of justice come across. And that's uh, most simply the idea that every action the doctor takes must be legal and uh, respectful of an individual's human rights. So uh, they can't stray off that. And if they do, it's, yeah, they'll probably end up in jail, won't they? Yeah, and it's these four pillars are basically going to be the core of the podcast and kind of what we refer to a lot in terms of making ethical decisions and how we approach our debates because fundamentally the main the the main way to approach medical ethics uh, in a medical context is using these four pillars. So I thought um, I've got an example here of a scenario, and I always find these really interesting um, and see what different people's opinions are. So I'll read this one out. It says, your father is very ill in hospital and will die in the next few days. You're struggling financially. Your father's life insurance policy will expire by midnight tonight. That means that after midnight, you cannot inherit his wealth and will really struggle in life and your family will struggle too as a result. What do you do? A, pinch his oxygen line before midnight. B, speak to your dad and gain his advice. Or C, let him die naturally but gain no inheritance. Okay, so Scott and Aditya, which one of you wants to give your first point of view? Hi guys, it's Param Editing here. Um, I just wanted to say that any opinions that we put forward are purely for the sake of debate. Um, if we say anything absurd or outlandish, it's purely for um, the discussion. And we don't necessarily believe all of the stuff that we're saying. So... I think that I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And I personally would, uh, well, I think that pinching the oxygen line is quite a viable option. Um, and the reason for this is because if you look at the utilitarian approach, then you know that it's going to be, it's going to uh, give greater good to the greater number by pinching the oxygen line. Yes, your dad may die. Well, he is going to die, but he would have died anyway. Uh, and by doing this act, it only rids him of a few days of life, whereas it gives your family a much better life. So I think that does give great good for the great number. And so I think that's probably the more viable option. Oh uh, yeah, well, I'd, I'd have to uh, oppose that view uh, from a legal 
perspective, the most obvious argument to this is essentially that uh, pinching the oxygen line is indeed illegal. And therefore, um, C is probably the best answer, isn't it? Because uh, that, that is one response, of course, but even at a more deeper level, perhaps pinching uh, the oxygen line before midnight is going to do a world of bad for um, your conscience. Yeah, that is true, because um, the guilt that you would feel would actually take away um, from your quality of life. And even if your family does gain uh, the inheritance, you have to counter that with the guilt. So, And you're also right that it, um, it technically is illegal to pinch the oxygen line. So maybe it is not that actually the most viable option, even if it is the utilitarian one. Well... I think if I'm going to add, we need to think about the most important thing is what does the father want? Does the father want to, does the father agree to this kind of uh, dying a few days early because of the benefit that he will cause to his family? Or um, does he want to live an extra few days? Because ultimately, um, going back to autonomy, the father has autonomy over, over whether he stays on his treatment or not. So if the father agrees that it would be for the greater good, then that gets rid of most of the ethical problems with it. Yeah, I I agree. The consenting is probably the most important part. And if he does consent, which he actually might, then I think that that is the most viable option, the best one. Yeah, well, yeah, I can see uh, your line of argument is very valid, to be honest. But if, if, if we connect ourselves a bit more emotionally, Personally, I would not be able to kill my father. Obviously, this isn't me, but uh, still, the the fundamental argument uh, that the guilt that would last for your entire life, I don't know. It is it is a very grey area on this one. But legally, from my standpoint, I'd still stick with my option C. Yeah, I think it's definitely kind of the emotional value of those last few days spent with your dad might outweigh all of the inheritance uh, all of the financial wealth that you might could possibly gain yeah can i just say that that is a perfect example of what an ethical dilemma is because you could see that all the options there they had like some benefit to them but they also had really big uh, like downsides to each and every one of them yeah and that's what makes medical ethics so interesting because there's no there's no right answer let's move on then So I think now we should go for a traditional medical example. You're a surgeon and have five patients who will die very soon if they don't get the needed organs. One patient needs a heart, one a liver, one lungs, and two need kidneys. Each patient is a generous person who has a a job that does good for the world. However, your neighbor lives alone. He is not a nice man, has no family, and has no job. By chance, he is a match for all five patients. So this is the question then. Do you kill him in half of his organs or is it just wrong? In my opinion, this would be severely wrong in every way conceivable. So the most obvious line of argument here, again, is evidently that killing someone is simply illegal. But even from a medical standpoint as well here, this becomes even more serious because it corrodes the pillar of justice, essentially. Uh, it's simply just not legal and you'd probably find yourself in prison doing that uh, no matter the conscience behind whoever is uh, carrying out the act uh, but let's for a minute let's pretend uh, that let's let's just ignore that line of argument let's pretend that the, cap- the capability of the justice system just breaks down 
but still through a Kantian understanding of me medical ethics and uh, guiding using the four, four or now the three pillars as guidance, um, we can see that still it does go against the idea of non-maleficence, still causes harm to the patient. It probably doesn't allow any autonomy for um, the person you're killing because murder is essentially, it doesn't seem like a very uh, open choice. Yeah, I think I think this one is kind of a bit less of a grey line than the last one because I think if you really think about it, killing someone is not um, really acceptable in any really in in most scenarios, if not all, it's uh, it's unacceptable, um, and he cannot consent to be killed, right? Like he does not want to die early, so it kind of goes against even though he's not a patient per se he goes against his autonomy and kind of it's violating the rights of a human being, which is not what a doctor does. So in that way, I would agree with it, Itcha. But let's just say that I'm going to play devil's advocate for a bit. Would you not say that in the grand scheme of things, let's say these five people, one of them is on the way so close to finding a miracle drug to cure a type of cancer, would you not agree that then there's a there's a viable kind of you can see how many lives are going to be saved if this person lives and no one else can do the work but this patient would that kind of change your thinking in any way or would that are you still completely stuck in your viewpoint um yeah i i do see that there is an argument there because if you do look at the utilitarian approach then you know that uh it probably uh is uh, in, at least in the short term doing a greater good for the greater number. And that actually brings me on to an interesting point because uh, if we look at utilitarianism and what it actually is, there are two divisions uh, that you can see in it. And the first one is act utilitarianism. And that is what I just said. It's basically looking at the greatest good for the greatest number. So for this example, uh, it, would mean, it would mean that you do kill the man in order to save the five lives. However, um, there's another type of utilitarianism called rule utilitarianism, and it's, it relies on the same sort of principle. However, it looks at the long-term effects too, and it would suggest that a society where people uh, fear being killed because their organs can be harvested is less good than one where five people die. So it looks at the long-term there too, and that would therefore suggest that in this uh, ethical dilemma, it's better to not kill the person so I think, to be honest, that I would have to go with the rule utilitarian approach in this one and say that killing the man is wrong because it would create a completely bad society in the future. I think that's a really, really interesting point that you've just brought up because we were before, before you mentioned this, we were kind of thinking at it in a, in a closed bubble, but the effect that this would have on the greater society, which doctors have to consider with every decision that they make, what trust people have in their NHS and the healthcare system, it kind of then it starts all going wrong. So I think that that's kind of the key here, that even though we probably wouldn't justify killing, if we do, it would have negative effects on the whole of society and therefore it goes against the whole utilitarianism approach where everyone is benefiting because people aren't, because they're scared. So I definitely agree with you, Scott. Okay. So I think now we're going to look at two more examples uh, and just get your views on it. So the first two examples uh, I'll give, okay, it's quite a short one. 
would you give a patient a placebo drug simply because the patient wanted treatment? And uh, just to clarify, a placebo drug is a drug that has no effects on on the human physiology, um, but it has like a mental effect. So you like think that you've taken a drug and therefore there's the argument that because you think something, your body will, you will feel like psychologically better. Yeah, so um, that's a really interesting question. And I think, I think in my personal opinion, giving the placebo is the right thing to do because Firstly, depends whether, you know, if it's if it's a, if it's the more uh, cost effective treatment option, if it's the easier treatment option, if it's the more effective one, if the patient doesn't need super life threatening treatment, the placebo can actually work out quite well. Placebos have been shown to lead to a 30 percent in um, patient improvement, condition improvement. So it's not like they're completely in, uh, fake because a lot of physical well-being relies on mental well-being as well. And it can make patients feel more comforted when there's nothing that can really be done for sometimes, you know, uh, you've got a condition that you just need to wait until it goes away. And some patients will come in being like, I want medicine, I want medicine, I want medicine. Giving a placebo, when we think about the benefits that it does in terms of outcome, it can, it can't do any harm, really. And it can only, it can possibly lead to benefits. So that's why I think giving a placebo is definitely the right approach to take. What would you think, Aditya? Um, so yeah, I, I, I think Param's uh, line of argument was actually very uh, valid, um, but it, it still ignores the fact that placebos are still ultimately lies. And according uh, to Kant and Kantianism, uh, this is fundamentally and ethically wrong because it, it, it really infringes on the autonomy of the patient. And uh, these patients re- rely on these information and they, they will always select true autonomy via placebos. And even if you think about it via rule ut- utilitarianism, if you like, right? You can, you can see the perspective that maybe in the long term, if, if patients are starting to find out that they're taking placebos, they can in fact be a little bit more concerned about uh, the medical industry and that's quite concerning because it could also get patients hopes up quite quite often but uh, yeah they can be they can very easily be dis- disappointed and that's something that medics need to uh, consider seriously can i comment here so um you mentioned this here that uh can't uh, said that lies were wrong and can't actually uh gave an example of how lies can go really wrong so the story is that one day a murderer knocks on the door of a man and his wife and uh, the murderer wants to assassinate the man, but the wife answers the door. And when the murderer asks the wife where, the, where her husband has gone, uh, the wife responds that her husband uh, is, has gone into the garden because she thinks that her husband is in the kitchen. So the murderer, relying on that false belief that he's in the garden, goes into the garden. And it turns out that the husband has actually gone into the garden. So then the murderer spots him and kills him. And that just goes to show that the woman was, to an extent, guilty for her husband's murder because of lying and can't use that to show how lying is universally wrong. That's a really interesting analogy, actually. But I think... I'd have to combat you and I'd have to say, is it really a full on lie if, you know, placebos can actually lead to some kind of, they can be considered a form of treatment at some times because they can lead to benefit. And for example, you know, in clinical trials, 
some patients receive a placebo and some people receive the actual drug. So it kind of, there's loads of different scenarios where placebos are quite a viable option and quite, you know, there's nothing really, I don't know. I don't think that, I think I'm going to stick with my opinion that the placebo is the best option when nothing can be done rather than, you know, prescribing antibiotics. Like what would be the other option? Would it be giving, giving treatment that would actually harm the patient or if it it's not going to do any good and it's just wasting the NHS's resources. So in a way, I think pl- the placebo does the least harm, whereas any other treatment option or sending the patient home without any treatment would just upset the patient. Sending home the patient with antibiotics can cause antibiotic resistance and all those kind of problems. And sending a patient home with some random medicine that doesn't really treat their disease um, is just a waste of resources. Yeah, that's why I think that was an interesting question because it's less it's less serious than the organ donor one. But, and really the only thing that's wrong with it is that it violates the pillars of medical ethics. And that brings in the question of how, um, how absolute are the pillars? Um, I think now we can move on to the final question. Um, and this question I actually thought of myself when I was researching this. So here's the dilemma. A patient needs a very important brain operation that only one doctor in the world is able to perform. The doctor is retiring soon. However, he has a young student who is by no means experienced enough to be guaranteed successful in this operation. The student must perform the surgery in order to learn uh, for when this sort of uh, disease happens in the future. Would you let the student perform the operation to save people's lives in the future? Or would you let the retiring neurosurgeon do the operation and therefore uh, have a higher guarantee of saving the patient's life? Mm. I'd say I, I'm going to have to say that the retiring surgeon here is going to have to perform the operation because it's simply not ethical to allow um, the student uh, to take care of, of the brain surgery, especially because there is no guarantee of success. And according to beneficence and uh, non-maleficence doing the least amount of harm, we can see that actually uh, perhaps having the retiring uh, surgeon um, is the best uh, scenario here because if we do allow the student to take care of uh, such a serious operation it's a very possible chance that uh, of failure of the operation and that violates completely the Hippocratic Oath. It just breaks this entire code of trust between uh, the patient trusting the doctor to do what is best for them but the doctor just simply mistreating that trust and risking a patient's life at least they should be put to the autonomy of the, of the patient. I think the patient should should be put at notice of that. Um, can I just clarify here that, that although your opinion is perfectly acceptable, if the if you let the uh, if you let the retiring doctor do it and not the student, then once the doctor retires, then there'll be no one left in the world who will be able to perform this specific operation. Yeah, that that is something definitely to consider. But no, still. Uh, the, the fundamental principle of risking the, the, the patient's life, it simply does not sit right with me. I think we have to think in terms of, we can't really think of it as a single occasion. We have to look into the future. And that's why I think the, the fact that after the doctor retires, no one will be able to perform the surgery. I think that that's really vital. You know, 
this doctor, this hypothetical young doctor is not just some random person off the street. We're assuming, you know, he's gone through med- medical school. He's technically a doctor. Um, and if he is the one that this brain surgeon is choosing to perform the surgery, then they must be very relatively, you know, competent. And I think that it's important that these skills are passed down. Let's Then what, ha- what would happen in the future? Let's say three patients come in needing this needing this surgery then three lives will have been lost because the retiring doctor can't perform the surgery so again balancing this kind of the greater good for greatest number of people this utilitarianism i would say that the young doctor should perform the surgery i mean of course the ideal scenario would be a more nuanced take where you know the young doctor does the surgery while the old one looks over but we can get into all these kinds of little complications but fundamentally we want to we want to look at whether it's right or wrong i think it's perfectly fine for the young doctor to 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 take the surgery but that's just my view but, but, but what, what, what do you think would happen okay let's take the let, let's take as a counterfactual the the worst possible scenario right so what what would happen if the uh so the surgery fails in the hands of the student because then the student would have evidently not learned anything maybe he would have learned some of his mistakes but he wouldn't have learned a great deal and someone would have died so you've lost two things how much would the young doctor learn just by observing the surgery could mm-hmm. that be another option where he doesn't actually need to perform it but just observes it or would that mean that when someone comes to perform it that doctor goes to perform it he's never actually done it before but i see your point and it just creates more problems for everyone involved where because if the surgery is has a low chance of being successful there's less being learned from it as well although yeah you will learn from your mistakes but it is a very big risk to take because we're talking about human lives here so actually you made me think that it is a bit more complex than i originally thought can i just clarify here that um well, I read a book by, it's called Admissions by Henry Marsh, and in it he wrote that uh, in everyday medicine, uh, senior surgeons do actually have to let more junior surgeons eventually perform a surgery. And although a lower, a lower down doctor would have, well, they probably would have less chance of success with the operation, they have to do it. And uh, I think that the example that I thought of here is quite an extreme uh, example of that because in normal in normal surgery, it would be a more common operation that other people in the world can do. But yeah, so that's why I chose this example. Yeah, that's definitely true because there are, I think the point with that is that in medicine for, for kind of it to continue, for the whole system to continue, risks need to be taken. And sometimes some lives need to be put at risk for the greater good and that's just how we'll progress in the name of learning but yeah you're definitely right this is quite an extreme scenario where only one doctor in the whole world is able to perform so it makes it more complicated another thing that we didn't really consider is what is the patient's view on that would the patient be informed but that the person who is performing the surgery does not have much experience and they might refuse treatment and that could change the whole thing but yeah, I think we could sit here and talking about this one scenario for a good hour. But I think it's just something that would definitely, and a lot of these medical ethics dilemmas are very much on a case-by-case basis where everything is looked at, you know, the, the history and the, the, the social background of the patient and everything. It's all taken into account. Yeah, okay. So I think that that concludes everything we have to talk about in this podcast. Um, 
It's been great fun to do this. Next time, I believe that we'll be talking about COVID vaccines and whether it's better to give the vaccines to less economically developed countries for the sake of not vaccinating certain age groups in more wealthy countries. Yeah, so that promises to be a really interesting and topical um, episode as well. It's definitely something that's super important right now. You know, we couldn't really have a healthcare podcast without talking about COVID at some point. But yeah, I hope you... Hope you guys have enjoyed uh, listening to the podcast. You know, it is our first one. So do let us know any feedback and comments on uh, either our social media at Hippocratical Podcast on uh, on Instagram, or you can email us at hypocriticalpodcast at gmail.com. That's in our Instagram as well. So yeah, it's been a really good first episode. I think we've had, a, it's, we've had some really interesting conversations. If you enjoyed this, then you'll definitely enjoy the future episodes. I, I just really, really enjoyed the podcast. Yeah, we're going to be picking back these, just the, the, these really cool conversations, really. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Uh, see you on the next episode, like Scott said about COVID vaccines. Um, and yeah, thank you all for listening.